0: The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at www.upc.org forward slash university. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 47th and 16th in Seattle's U District. Hey, as you guys are sitting down tonight, why don't you turn to somebody, meet them, and tell them your favorite ever Halloween costume that you've ever had. Take a seat. Exciting to talk about Halloween costumes. I know coming up. Welcome to the inn. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Janie. I am one of the pastors on staff here. And Halloween is coming up this weekend. It's exciting. I always like to remember back, remember back to when I was a kid and some of the costumes that I would wear. I have a few that were pretty fun, you know, once I went as a Statue of Liberty and wore a blue sheet, you know, and then I made a, I was going to say crown of thorns. No, I didn't make a crown of thorns. (laughs) I made a headband with, like, spikes coming off of it um, and put tinfoil, and then my torch was my flashlight. It operated as both things. Very exciting. Um, But my favorite costume ever, it wasn't mine, but it was a friend of mine. Um, He went as a porta potty so, he took a, he took a giant refrigerator box, um, and, he, and he, cut a door in it, and then he kinda walked around with it, he put a roll of toilet paper on the outside, and then had a little sign that said occupied, and, and wrote, please knock on the door, and then anytime anybody, anybody would knock, he'd say, oh, somebody's in here! So, so great, great costume. Did any of you guys go trick-or-treating as a kid? Yeah, alright. I loved going trick-or-treating, but the thing was that, my mom always made me wear my winter coat, like, over my costume. You know, so you get to the door and people be like, oh, what are you? And be like, oh, I'm Wonder Woman, see the tights, very exciting. But, and my older brother and sister schooled me, where do you go in the neighborhood to get the best candy, right? They give out full-size candy bars. Very exciting. Avoid these houses because they give, like, bags of pennies, remember, as a kid, or an apple. You you know, say trick-or-treat and you watch this bag of pennies go in your bag. You're like, I didn't sign up for this bag of pennies. Oh, it's about candy. I don't know if you've heard Seinfeld, Jerry Seinfeld, talking about Halloween. I talk about the first time that a kid gets to hear about the concept of Halloween. What did you say about giving out candy? Like for free? Everyone we know is just going to give out candy? When, where? When is this going to happen? What do I have to do? Tell me what I need to do. I can wear that. All right. Sign me up. Very exciting. So Halloween's coming up this weekend, and I thought, since some of you um, might not, if you're going to a party, you might not know what costume you're going to wear. We're going to do a little quiz tonight. So it's a quiz, so um, don't yell out the answers, but I um, have some of the top five top five Halloween costumes for the, 2010. Not necessarily kids' costumes, also adult costumes. So, if you think you know what they are, one is from music, two are from movies, one is from TV, and one's a politician. Does anyone have an idea? Yeah. No. Yeah. Uh, I think that was on the list, but not one of the top five. Yeah. Lady Gaga. Lady Gaga. I actually have a treat for you. Oh, sorry. Anybody else? Any other guesses? Did you have one? Sue uh, Sylvester. No. Sarah Palin. yeah, she's a politician. That's a Sarah Palin mask, yeah. Double uh, Rainbow. Double Rainbow might be on the list, but it wasn't in the top five. Justin Bieber. Justin Bieber, no, I didn't have him in the top five. Yeah. Matt Hatter. Oh, Ma- Alice in Wonderland was on the list. Yeah. No, that's a good guess, though. Yeah. Who? No, not Taylor Swift. No, not Iron Man. How about this? How about this? Smell like a man. What's that? Old Spice Guy. Yep. That's another one. Uh, Yeah. Avatar, that was on the list. There's another movie you should think about from last week. Now, last week, any other movies that you can think about that might be popular, coming out pretty soon? Harry Potter. Yeah, right there. (laughs) If you want to know how to dress up like Harry Potter, just check out Church Tonight. Um, There's one more. He's a really moody guy, had amazing hair. It's from a movie. Can you guess this? Allie, do you have a guess? Moody guy from a movie. Edward Who? Edward Colin. Yeah, that's it. Oh, sorry. Okay. So there you go. There's some ideas for you and a lot of others that people threw out. If you didn't get in sunglasses but you want some, just let us know. You can have some. But the reason that I'm talking about Halloween and costumes is that when it comes to costumes, the people wearing costumes, Things aren't as they seem, right? You might see somebody be like, "Oh, it's President Obama." Oh no, it's just my roommate, right? <laughs> With Halloween, things aren't as they seem, and we have been looking at a book of the Bible so far this quarter—the Book of Revelation—that says a lot over and over again: Things aren't as they seem; they aren't as we think they are. So um, we're going to take—we're going to go a little bit deeper into Revelation tonight. But before we do that, I'm going to stop a minute and pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the fact that you are present with us. We are so grateful that you are faithful in our lives, um, that you always show up, God. And I pray that you would be with us here tonight. Remind us of your presence, remind us of your spirit, and fall on us. Be with us here as we gather to continue to worship you, to discover more of you from your word. God, I pray for all of the students who are gathered here tonight that might be overwhelmed with school, with studying. I pray that they would be able to just leave that aside for right now and focus on learning about you and hearing you speak in their lives. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So, This book of Revelation, this was written by John, one of Jesus' disciples. And John was imprisoned on this island. He has these visions from God, and he starts writing them down. He starts giving us these pictures of Scripture, these pictures of the Gospel. And last week, we looked at Revelation chapter 4, and we're going to look at Revelation 5 tonight. And you need to know that these two chapters actually go together. They go hand in hand, and they're very important. They're very pivotal to the rest of Revelation. If you didn't have these chapters, it'd be really difficult to read the rest of Revelation because what we're going to start to see in the next few weeks, it can be really tough stuff. It ain't pretty what comes next in Revelation. So these, these chapters are very important. They're very pivotal. And at the beginning of chapter 4, John looked and he saw a door to heaven. So we looked in that door to heaven and the first thing that we noticed he saw some pretty crazy stuff. He saw creatures covered with wings and eyes and he saw bright shining jewels and rainbows. And as we read that chapter and as we start looking in chapter 5 tonight, it's tough not to be like, "What the what?" and shut the Bible and be like, "Okay, I'm done." But when we encounter things in scripture that are difficult that don't make sense to us, we shouldn't just walk away. We should dig a little deeper. And I was actually reminded by the speaking team this um, last week. I think actually Dan Matei said it. He said, when we're looking at Revelation, when we're looking at Scripture, we have to remember that what we're looking at is we're trying to explain the unexplainable. We're looking at God. God of the universe, majesty and glory and power. And we are trying to pare that down into our pathetic little words. So John is doing the best he can, explaining what it is that he sees. And trying to demonstrate to us the visions that he has. And what we saw last week, when he looks in that door of heaven, the most significant thing that John sees when he looks in heaven is a throne. And sitting on that throne is God. God in his majesty and splendor and God who brings peace. And there are heavenly creatures all around that throne and they are worshiping God. Now that brings us to chapter 5. John's still looking into the door of heaven. And he is getting a new vision for life in this world. He's getting, and he's actually giving us a vision for life, how we see the world in 2010, here and now. That is what he's actually giving to us. Now, you might be thinking, all right, if you say so, Janie. Um, creatures like an ox and a lion with wings. Yeah, that totally reminds me of people I know. All right, great. But believe me. When we're looking at this vision of heaven, we are going to get a picture of what is really going on in the world because things are not as they seem. So let's read, um, chapter five. And again, try and picture in your mind what it is that John is trying to communicate. What are these images? Starting at verse one. Then I saw the right hand of him who sat on the throne. God is sitting on the throne. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. All right, so let's uh, break this down piece by piece. And then we're going to take a step back and we're going to try and grasp what is the image? what What is it that John is trying to communicate to us? With these images remember things aren't necessarily as they seem so we'll start with the scroll so god is on a throne holding the scroll in his right hand and a scroll is something that would a letter would have been written to people in the first century you would rolled it up and you would have sealed it with like a wax seal or you would have used um like thread to tie knots and then the person who received it would have opened it up and read what was inside And what is contained in the scroll is actually, most interpretations say, it's the secrets of the universe. Now, I understand that sounds very Lord of the Rings, but what is on that scroll are kind of the big philosophical questions that all of us face. Who are we? What are we doing here? What is my purpose? Why am I here? And it is, on this scroll, it's the completeness of God's plan to rectify what is wrong in this world. The brokenness, the chaos, the pain, the suffering. Establishing God's gracious rule in the world. Now the problem is that God's intention for this to be carried out in the world was that we would do it. Right? We would be the ones that would carry God's plan out in the world. That's what Genesis says at creation, that we would carry out God's plan. But the problem is, with our human nature, our selfish, sinful nature, we're unable to do it. We are unable to carry out God's plan for the world. Every human is incapable about, of bringing the truth of what God wants the world to know. God's love and grace and compassion. Because we are broken. And that reality hits John, and he starts Weeping verse four says I wept and I wept Because he knew the reality is that we fall short No matter how hard we try we alone will never be able to save ourselves or other people We will never be able to be the ones who bring forth god's plan for saving a broken world We can do a lot we can create we can build we can write we can produce we can make beautiful things But we are limited in saving ourselves and saving one another. Because we are broken, we are sinful, we are selfish. At least I know I am. And John is overwhelmed with the reality that he can't right wrongs. He can't fix the brokenness. And he's in despair. Now, as someone who is so easy, it's so easy for me to see my brokenness. To see my sinfulness and get caught up in that and to see the brokenness in the world, I want John to kind of go in depth a little bit more about his weeping and his sadness. But there is a reason that his weeping is very short-lived. He's actually told by one of the elders to stop weeping and look at who is coming in. Who's coming into this throne room? It's the Lion of Judah. Now, Judah is the name given to God's people, Israel. And, and John turns to look to see this lamb. Excuse me, to see this lion. But what he sees is not a lion. He actually sees a lamb. And it completely changes the way John sees the world. Changes the way we see the world as well. So pick it up in verse 6. John turns and looks... Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center before the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So the lamb went and took the scroll from God. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp. And they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God members of every tribe and language and people and nation." You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Now, I understand what the first reaction might be to this part of Revelation. That sounds like one freaky-looking lamb, right? The lamb is covered with seven eyes and seven horns. And it says that it, the lamb came in to take the scroll. You know, and you get the picture in your head of this lamb, like, walking on its back two legs and with its hooves, like, coming over and trying to pick up paper. Like, how does that even work? It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. I get that that sounds crazy to us. But we have to dig deeper and know that there is meaning behind these pictures. Eyes are a symbol of wisdom. And seven is a number of completeness. So this lamb has complete wisdom and insight, unmatched in the universe. And a horn is a symbol of strength. This lamb is covered with seven horns. So it has immense power and strength that can't be found anywhere else. But even with this wisdom and power, it says that this lamb is slain. John looks and it looks as if it has been slaughtered and it walks over to the throne and it is able to take the scroll. God's plan of healing, of redemption, of forgiveness, of love for the world. And this lamb opens the seals on the scroll. What no one else can do, no one else can do, this lamb is able to do. And he comes and he takes his place on the throne alongside the almighty God. Now, as you've probably been able to guess, this lamb is Jesus. And he's not victorious by being this mighty lion, this lion who comes in and rips to shreds anybody who who would oppose him. He's victorious by sacrificing himself on the cross by dying and raising again so God's plan of justice and redemption and forgiveness could be present in this world that we live in, right here, right now, in 2010. What we could not do, Jesus was able to do on the cross. He was able to bring the message of God's love and grace on that scroll by showing us what love and grace looks like dying on the cross nothing else has comparison in this world to what jesus could do for us jesus wins jesus has the victory now typically when we talk about victory we usually are talking about the end of the story right we talk about you know like yes rudy gets to go in the football game and play for the irish of notre dame Victory at the end. The Karate Kid wins the All-Valley Karate Tournament. Victory at the end of the story. Spoiler alert, but it's been 20 years. You should know what happens at the end of those movies. Um, Victory, we expect victory at the end. But in this case, the victory comes actually at the beginning of the story. Any of you who know the acceptance of of. Jesus love and grace in your lives and the forgiveness. You know that you aren't working toward victory, but you actually start with victory in the relationship you have with Jesus. We actually get to start at the finish line. That's the victory that we have. Now, that doesn't mean that life's a cakewalk. It's going to be so easy from here on out. I mean, life is hard. Life is difficult. I mean, we could go through a review of my romantic relationships just to know how much life sucks sometimes, right? There is hurt. There is pain. There is brokenness. There is chaos. We're not denying that. John's actually going to lay that out in some of the chapters to come in Revelation, the reality of the continuation of brokenness in this world. But John, just like John, he's told not to stop weeping because I'll just give up. Jesus lost. Jesus lost. He's not told he should stop weeping because, oh, you you need to get up because you have to fight to win. John is told that he can stop weeping because the victory has already been won. The victory that comes from the lamb that was slain in a relationship with Jesus, the forgiveness and love and compassion that comes from the fact that Jesus wins and we can have that in our lives. Now, as we said before, Revelation doesn't bring anything new into Scripture. Everything that we see in Revelation has been in the previous 65 books of the Bible. And the lamb being slain is one of those things. In Exodus chapter 12, Israelites have been enslaved by the Egyptians for 400 years. And they finally experience freedom from slavery by lambs, perfect lambs, shedding blood. And they are able to go free. In Isaiah chapter 53, the prophet is talking about the Messiah that's going to come. And referring to Jesus, and he says, He was oppressed and afflicted, but he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silence, so he did not open his mouth. In the New Testament, when Jesus comes on the scene, John the Baptist points to him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God. And in First Peter, he refers to Jesus as a Lamb that is perfect, without blemish. And here we have in Revelation, we have this moment of total revolution, right? This is revolution when we know the freedom from the bondage of sin, All of these pictures of the lamb being slain come together in the very last book of the Bible. And we get this perfect picture of Jesus, who is both meek and sacrificial and majestic, worthy to be praised, taking a place alongside God on this throne. This chapter goes on to say that after Jesus opens the scroll, there are several explosions of worship. In the heavenly realm. They're like, I imagine in my head they're like fireworks going off. Creatures numbering thousands upon thousands. They sing a new song. Different from weeping. But a song celebrating this God who loves them. And then it grows to 10,000 upon 10,000. And really that's just a symbolic for an infinite number. In verse 13 it goes on to include more than just the creatures in heaven. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Every living creature in the entire universe is declaring Jesus wins. Revelation is awesome. But the picture we get of the reality of our faith, Jesus is one. That's the beginning of our story. Now, if we take it down from a 10,000-foot level, right, if we take it down to us practically here today, so often what happens when we acknowledge this victory, if we consider ourselves a Christian, we might say, all right, I know the power of God's plan to change my life. And I know Jesus died on the cross for me, and I feel like I'm covered. And that's where we stop. but in this chapter, Jesus breaking these seals and God's love and redemption pouring forth for the world, we're reminded this is for everyone. This changes everything in this world. Our worldview should be radically changed by this reality because the lamb being slain is life- altering for us. because before Jesus or John was weeping, no one is worthy. To open the scroll, but because of Jesus, we can share God's plan of love and redemption for this world. We can be the ones that bring about what it is that God wants this world to know. I mean, that's a big part of the reason that we go on mission trips, like the ones we're talking about tonight. Because we can serve those in need. We can bring about, we can try to fight against injustice. Let God's way of compassion and love and forgiveness be known. Because what is on the scroll in God's hand, that is for everyone. It's for everyone you know. It's for your family. It's for your friends. It's for your enemies. The lamb was slain for them. That professor who has a clearly anti-Christian agenda, the lamb was slain for him. For that person in your house who parties like it's going out of style, Jesus died for her, for the kids in the DR in Cambodia, for the people in the world who don't have clean water. They need to know the love and compassion of Jesus. For the guy that you work with who doesn't really have any friends, he's kind of weird. For that jerk that cut you off in traffic, Jesus died for them. The lamb was slain for them. And they need to know, so many people need to know that reality, the reality of God's love for them, so they can experience life. A picture I have of this in my head, an illustration of a time I saw this tangibly. I was on a mission trip. I was on deputation, and I was in Romania. And we were um, living in an orphanage, and we were working at a baby orphanage. And... You would walk into the room, this baby orphanage, and there would be like 50 cribs all around. And as soon as you, and they were full of babies, ages, you know, birth to one years old. And you walk in this room, and it was dead silent. These babies would lay in these cribs, and they would they would feed themselves, and they would self-soothe. And it was like they weren't even really alive. And then you would walk up to the crib, and you would lean over and just Stick one finger in there, and as soon as it was close to them, they would grab onto it. And they would look up at your face, and they would light up with the reality that somebody was there to love them. Our role is to make sure people know that Jesus died for them. We shouldn't be able to help ourselves because of the way it has changed our lives. Not that you have to only do it in words. I understand that you can... You can appear a little mental if you're constantly like, Jesus loves you and died for you and has a plan for your life all the time. You don't have to, we don't expect, I don't expect you to walk around and do that all the time. Sometimes I would, you know, hope that you would talk about the way Jesus had changed your life. But how are you showing people, how are you showing them that the lamb was slain for them in the way that you live your life? How are you Going to be able to show that tomorrow in the decisions that you make this week How will the victory of jesus be made known? Now I know that this isn't always easy can be a little bit difficult Especially because of the way jesus is portrayed in our culture a lot of the time, right? I went on the internet and googled, you know images of jesus and I want to show you some of the ones I found Thumbs up jesus, right? Right on. All right. And then you have Jesus playing football. Another picture of Jesus, we have Jesus in a Mack truck. All right. Jesus can squish you. That's what we want to communicate. And juiced up Jesus. Great. I don't think these images are the pictures we get of who Jesus is in Scripture, right? We just read about a lamb who was slain, who sacrificed himself. And I don't think these are pictures of what Scripture says. I think they're more pictures of what our culture says. Because in our world, what is victorious? What wins? The most powerful, that's who wins. The strongest. The ones with the most money, the most success. That's who wins in our world. But when you get a glimpse of heaven, like John tells us in Revelation 5, how you see the world changes. Because things aren't as they seem. That is not God's plan for the world. In reality, God's reality, the greatest power in the universe is actually the weakness of sacrificial love. The greatest wisdom in the universe is the foolishness of giving up yourself for somebody else. The way of the Lamb is the most wise and powerful way that we can follow because it leads us back to Jesus. Listen to what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. Some people say the most important thing in Scripture. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. These are not positions of strength and power, but they are places of love and compassion, of humility and sacrifice. These are places where we can see a victory found in Jesus a victory found in the lamb that was slain and we can all proclaim like it says in revelation 513 to him who sits on the throne and unto the lamb be all blessings and glory and honor and power forever and ever. Amen. Gracious God, we want to know the power of your sacrifice God, we want to know the strength of giving up yourself for someone else. God, give us an excitement to share you in every area of our lives. That we could show it not only in the words that we say, but that we would be able to demonstrate in the way that we love. In the way that we share our lives. In the way that we reach out and care for those who are in need. God, we want this world to know even more. Your justice and your mercy and your compassion and your love. God, and we want to be the ones who can share that. In your holy name, amen.